I'm joined today by longtime guest Tom Castley, and Tom's joining me today to talk about organizational change. Tom, you're very welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. I always enjoy these conversations. Likewise, Tom, and I, I don't know what lies ahead, but I know I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> it it's, and, and the topic is an interesting one. It faces most sales leaders, I, was, I would imagine, that there's always some level of change that needs to be implemented. But maybe we could start with some of the, the bigger picture. I know you've been very successful in your career in taking organizations from one level to the next, which obviously requires quite a lot of change of the people who are there in terms of what they're doing and then also how you're hiring in for that change as well. Uh, maybe you could start by framing the challenge facing leaders where change needs to take place for whatever reason. Yeah, that's a, a, a broad subject. I think if I talk about my recent experience, the joy I've had in implementing change um, said outreach, for example, was actually taking people who had nothing to change. In other words, they were a blank canvas when they joined, predominantly hiring SDRs and taking them through the journey. And that presented a very different set of challenges to taking more tenured salespeople and bringing them round to a new way of selling. And given the environment that we've been in over the last two or three years where the rule book for selling has been thrown up in the air. We, we talked about this before, you know, you used to have a, a mobile phone, uh, a day book and a company car. <laughs> and now we have, you know, Zoom, a set of headphones, which run out of charge regularly and, um, and, and remote selling. Ooh. So a lot of that change was enforced. Um, but that also created, you know, great opportunities for people like me who revel in change um, to actually experiment with with the blank canvas of people very early stage in their career and seeing if we couldn't bring around uh, the kind of the change and development that were required to be successful. Okay, so your, your, your example you're giving me is really where you've got to deliver on something that's different to what it is today, but you're hiring into it rather than trying to change what's already there. Yes, I, I, I would say I, I was fortunate in that regard mm. uh, because I wasn't dealing with, uh, you know, kind of habits that mm. people had created before. I think it's, uh, it's equally as challenging, I guess, but it's just easier for me taking somebody and developing them than it is deprogramming and reprogramming somebody who's always worked in a particular way. Yeah. And and that's because, you know, you will have seen this from a sales training standpoint, is people nod in sales training, they try it once, it doesn't work, and they go back to the way that they used to do it. Well, if they've never done it before and they try it once and it doesn't and it doesn't work, they come they come back to you to find out what do they need to do differently. And that gives you the opportunity free of charge, I guess, to have two or three iterations of that uh, to get them to a point where they're starting to see success, those glimpses of brilliance, and to roll those out. And um, uh, just the way the industry is going, the explosion in the number of salespeople uh, and, and kind of that, yeah, the industry as a whole, I guess, uh, means there's more opportunity to be able to do that. But there are a different set of leadership qualities that are required. Can I give you two examples 
uh, of where I have been invited into an organization and presented with a particular challenge that they're having. And my instinct is always to say, this could be a problem. Mm. Uh, and that's not being negative about it. And I'll give you the two instances. One you'll be very familiar with, um, one particular organization, because I know you used to work there years ago. And uh, it was a very traditional organization from a technology perspective, uh, multi-million dollar deals, on-premise software, then company strategy changed to selling cloud-based solutions, which are sold very differently. One is mm. big ticket, IT, CIO typically is the, is the buyer. The other one is now I have to talk to the HR director, I have to talk to the finance director, sales director and so on. Mm. And, and, and I'm selling differently to each one. And I remember one particular VP in this organization talking to me saying, we have these high ticket item sellers and we now need to turn them into this cloud software sellers, SaaS sellers, and they're struggling. And I'm going, yeah, I understand because it's not just even the skill sets. There's an identity tied up in. Mm. <laughs> I don't know why I did that when I, when I mentioned identity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I probably should have done more like this. <laughs> that was a Freudian slip right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's an identity of who I am and who I, what, you know, I sell big ticket items rather than the, the, the other type of seller who's almost uh, scrambling. And mm. that's, that's, a, that's not a, the right term, but you know what I'm saying? Mm. They're, they're, they're trying to get in to speak to this person and it's the land and expand type yeah. sale. Uh, what's your experience of that and what advice would you have for anybody faced with a challenge like that? And then we'll talk about the other one later. Um, uh, well, change is tough. <laughs> Number one, it's why people normally avoid doing it. Mm. Um, there's, a, there's a huge piece called stability preference where better the devil you know than the devil you don't or you know um uh, if it ain't broke don't fix it all of these things relate to stability preference um you could argue that kind of the, without getting into politics you know the, the 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 resistance to do anything about the current prime minister in the uk is stability preference better the devil you know than the devil you don't yeah uh so it's in all facets of life uh but if you're going to implement change uh, I've always subscribed to the idea of doing it with people rather than doing it to people. Um, but there is also a, another framework that's really important. It's called the Tuckman curve, which is whenever you implement any change, uh, you then have a forming, storming, norming and performing outcome from it. So forming is everybody's really polite about it. They'll kind of, you know, they'll go along with it. They're happy with it. They'll then storm on it. This isn't working. It's not right here. Are all the issues with it. If you can get through that, then you have a norming phase. And then ideally you have a performing phase that, that comes after it. And the quality of leadership is both to reduce the amplitude of those elements and also to reduce the duration between forming and performing. And, um, you know, methods behind that is to is to recognize that you've got each of those stages that you go through and to think right okay in the forming stage we need to provide clarity on what is the outcome and why the decisions being made and ideally do that collaboratively and together uh, help people to discover that it's the right thing to do and to be on board with it during the storming phase is to recognize that um, and 
to have them come up with solutions to those storms. Again, that's with people. And then when, once you get into the kind of the norming phase is then to get into what's commonly called the killer whale management, which is, um, you know, the way they treat or the way they train killer whales is they never tell them off. They just treat them when they do good things. Um, you know, and they, you know, it's the same way as you treat, you know, the way you train animals and so on and so forth. Um, so it's, it's constantly enforce, reinforcing those good behaviors that then people gravitate towards that then creates a performing culture. Interesting. Um, thinking about that example as well, there is something that I have often observed is in an organization, they'll, they'll think about the product mm. and the architecture of the solutions in terms of what needs to change in an organization, but won't think about how it's going to be sold. Which, which I, th I think, you know, there, there's a, a cons uh, maybe a misconception, which I'd like to get your take on, is that sellers can sell anything. Mm. It, it really doesn't matter. Mm. What, what's your own take on that? Uh, see, I, yeah, I believe they can sell anything and it really doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't matter. We spoke in a previous podcast about actually mm. sellers that don't believe in their product actually may be better at discovery than ones that mm. do because, mm. uh, you know, they want to make sure that the customer is going to be successful. And it, the one thing that sprung to mind when you were talking about that previous company that went from on-premise to SaaS and I do big deals versus I don't is just reframing that. Uh, having done some of those big on-premise deals, um, you know, the reward comes very early on in the process because I do the big deal, I get my big commission check uh, and the headaches follow there on after. And every good salesperson who does big ticket deals tries to disassociate themselves with the rollout thereafter. And in actual fact, they are the best person to help the client through it because they have vision lock. Uh, they help to inspire them to make the change, which is tough. And one of the things we did when I was there was was reframing what a big deal looks like. So, OK, you can sell a twenty five million dollar deal up front um, and it may not be successful because the customer has a, a requirement, an expectation that they're going to get benefit from that twenty five million up front early on in the process. Now, uh, if you were to do that iteratively and land and expand, uh, you could potentially make that customer a 35, 40 million dollar business over a year and a half, two years, have way more success, uh, have way more enjoyment about doing that, uh, be doing a bigger deal that's more transformational over time uh, and potentially get paid. Uh, well, you would do because the, 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 the total revenue is greater to the business. We get paid more money for doing that uh, and have a more rewarding experience. Now, that company didn't do that deliberately. What happened was there were three or four very smart salespeople who had gravitas in the organization who worked that out for themselves. Uh, and then the sheep followed them. Uh, what would have made that far more or far less painful would have been to recognize that at a leadership level and to implement that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's the answer. It's the conversation needs to take place at leadership level. Uh, to, to reframe the challenge because you're right they're smart people and they will adapt but mm. it, it didn't happen it's not the only place I've seen it again and again what's your take then on this one um, and I appreciate at the moment we're really kind of talking about maybe attitudes to change mm. but 
I've seen organizations, uh, conversation even recently, where the reps in an organization, for historical reasons, were very good at tactical sales. Typical mm -hmm. box shipping type organization, where quick to build rapport, get the quote out, close the deal, two, maybe two calls, maximum two, done. And then the organization goes, you know what, that th we could have, this is not really scalable. Uh, we we want to get into some sort of managed service, a solution sale where the sales cycles might be six months. You're calling at a higher level. I've seen salespeople really struggle to make that transition because it goes against some of their natural traits of how they engage and communicate. Yeah, so that there's a momentum element to that, isn't there? Which is the, the momentum is in the direction of, you know, box shifting, doing tactical deals, um, uh, uh, fulfilling those transactions and moving on. And then suddenly overnight you say, well, hang on a minute. Whoa, you know, we're, we're not doing van deliveries anymore. We're doing, we're doing airline deliveries. You know, it's, 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 bigger stuff it's the usual thing of going from you know selling to smb and we we now want to sell to enterprise you know now if you assume that the product has a fit you know we're not we're not trying to sell you know extra small t-shirts to extra large people anymore uh, we actually have something that we can position there are two things for me uh one is there is a different selling approach which we'll cover in a second, but that, uh, and what we won't cover is the fact that is the business ready for enterprise. What I've seen often happen is the salespeople react, evolve, and change actually fairly quickly, but the business doesn't follow through in terms of do they have the deployment methodologies for enterprise? Do they have the customer success elements for enterprise? Do they have the support processes for enterprise? Do they have the packaging around those as well? And so when the clients then ultimately fail, they point at the salespeople for not having sold it properly. Whereas in actual fact, they sold it. We just didn't deliver it right. So that's a whole different podcast, which is you know making sure that the businesses align together to go to enterprise. But from a selling standpoint into enterprise, um, the two key areas for me that have the, the most impact is one is the recognition that the, the buying team and the selling team needs to explode in size. So uh, there's lots of talk out there at the moment of, uh, of, you know, the buying committee is a lot bigger now than it was four or five years ago. Well, that's both organizationally happening, but also millennials, which are now the you know, becoming economic buyers tend to buy uh, collectively and look for affirmation of a decision rather than, you know, being you know, standing up on their own and making those decisions, just kind of how businesses work, which, which I love. Um, the thing that the selling organization needs to do and therefore the seller needs to do is to recognize that if you have a buying committee, you need to have a selling committee. It can't just be me. It can't just be me and my pre-sales person. I need to work out who are the lots of other personalities that I can pair off and manage as an orchestra to an orchestra. Yeah, this isn't tennis anymore. This is a rugby game where I've got 15 people on each side. You don't see scrum halves taking on prop forwards. You put a prop forward with a prop forward uh, and you work out how to marry them up 
so that we can come together and, and have a good game where you know an outcome is ideally mutually beneficial. So that's number one, is making sure that you've got a buying committee and you're also looking for the selling committee. Um, uh, the second uh, uh, part of that for me is, um, and I've slightly lost my train of thought. Um, we were talking about the explosion in both the buying uh, side of yeah. things and that the millennials will come together to make decisions rather than do it independently. And then yes, that's we were talking it. about now, the now I've got it. Yeah. So um, when you're when you're doing an enterprise deal, the fact of the matter is is that the transaction size is going to be a lot bigger, and so you can't start at the shop floor. You have to start at the executive um, early on in the process. You undoubtedly will go to the shop floor in the middle of the process. The, the mistake that people make is they sell high, and they just try and stay there. And in actual fact, you need to sell high and low, but you have to start high. Because if you don't, if you start low and you try and go high later on, uh, your only avenue is price. There's, there's no kind of, you know, kind of relationship to, you know, kind of the business outcomes that they're looking for, the initiatives, the strategies that they're after. And um, yeah, so I would, I would advocate that you start high. Uh, something for another podcast then is if you're starting high uh the price is now completely irrelevant i know something that you subscribe to but you know, if you're solving uh, a 50 million dollar problem uh, you're not uh, no executive in their right mind is going to be thinking that a hundred thousand dollar software solution is going to sell for 50 million million dollar problem they're expecting to spend at least five million on that so if you're only a hundred grand um you're going to get one small percentage of their time because they're going to be looking at other solutions to address that. And, and invariably, uh, one they'll need a multitude of solutions to implement that kind of change. So just have the gumption to say, we're a $2 million solution. Uh, then you'll get their time. <laughs> you'll get their access that you need. I think a lot of people undersell the value of their proposition when they go from kind of box shifting to enterprise, not realizing just getting access to that person is important. Mm. I'll tell you a really interesting story. It could have been the biggest mistake for me as a leader. Luckily, I had a super smart sales rep who, who stamped on my toe figuratively in the meeting to have me shut up. We were in with a very large multinational business selling a proposition and um, uh, this global sales, this, this global executive sat in a meeting with us and asked us to question, you know, just, so how much is this? And, um, and, and then there's a middle bit where we didn't answer the question. And she came back and she said, um, you know, because eight millions, my number. And my natural reaction was, well, that's brilliant because we're probably going to be like a million and a half, <laughs> way below that number. Uh, you know, we've got sign off, we've got power, brilliant. Uh, what I hadn't realized, it's the first time it ever happened and I did the sense it, was when she said eight million, that was where her sign off started. And she wanted her name on the project. So anything below eight million was going to be given to somebody else and she didn't get to own it. And luckily my rep worked that out. I said, well, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, uh, we were gonna be way north of that number anyway. 
and um, you know we'll we'll need to you know work you know work around that solution and, and you know uh, and the story then goes on we went off to one of these big consulting companies they padded it out for us beautifully it ended up being about ten and a half million she was happy <laughs> and we you know we we padded ourselves we got it to about two million <laughs> but yeah. but really interesting when you're at that executive level uh, price is never the issue mm. it's about perception and can something like this be the solution to my problem and they'll have an expectation of what they want to spend interesting so uh, it's, a, it's a great question what's their number but it's not what we think it is and uh, mm. let's come back to change for a moment and talk to me about um or let's take a, a couple of scenarios one is where an organization because of some external maybe competitive threats new legislation technology change whatever realizes that they need to change direction. It could be from on-premise to, to SaaS yeah. or something maybe less transformational, but at the same time, they need to change. And as we all know, particularly with millennials and especially with Gen Zers, uh, is very independent-minded, uh, know what they want and not afraid to go after it. That's a strength, but I would mm. imagine, and I have no experience of this, so I'm asking, is how do you get them then to be going in the same direction, believe in the vision, so that you're able to execute on the change that's required? There's a good set of seven questions that I was uh, exposed to some years ago around this kind of change side of things. Um, and you run it as a workshop. Uh, I did it recently uh, at Outreach as well with, uh, with part of the business there. Um, that says, right, well, I need to paint, as a leader, I need to paint a vision of, of where we need to get to. Uh, ideally, that should be able to be done on a flip chart, uh, ideally with some kind of picture. It doesn't have to be paragraphs of stuff. As broad, and the reason that's done deliberately is to, is to not complete the picture. It's not my job to paint the picture. It's my job to kind of, you know, can you see what it is yet? The old <laughs> Rolf Harris kind of, you know, <laughs> thing, and stop halfway through. And... And then, then you give the teams uh, their first three questions. And you send them off into a room. Their first question is, um, what is the ultimate goal? The reason you ask them that question is, I can tell them to I'm blue in the face, and I think they've heard it. But until you hear it back from them, you don't actually get a sense of, are they in vision lock yet or not? Uh, and it's interesting, I, I've done this where I've thought, I've just given them the absolute clearest vision possible. Here's the number, here's the objective. And, and when you get them back in to present their answers to the seven, the first question out of seven groups, I got seven different answers. So, wow. Wow, this is like 10 minutes after I presented to you. How did that happen? But so that exercise, you know, what's the ultimate goal? Uh, the second question then is, uh, what is my role in delivering that goal? And then third is, um, uh, what are the outcomes uh, I'm going to drive uh, to be able to deliver towards that goal? And when you get multiple teams together and they start talking about that, you then start to get a clarity, or no, rather, you start to get alignment behind that vision. What's the ultimate goal? What's their role in delivering it? What's their cog, if you will? Uh, and what outcomes would be delivered as part of them doing that? The second phase you then go into is a clarity kind of piece, which is when, okay, so what am I going to do to drive those outcomes? Um, what help do I need from those above me to be able to achieve those? Mm -hmm. 
um, and what are some of the blockers that I might face? What are some of the challenges I've got? And when people start to, to theorize around that, what you then start to get when, when people, when the groups present to each other is you find these, these overlaps. Well, if you do that, that's stopping me do this. Mm. Uh, and, it, and if you're doing that, that doesn't help me in my goal in this area. And that's trying mm. to drive that clarity of, of, of bringing the cogs closer together so they link up uh, and the machine starts to work. Do you know what I was listening to you here and what I'm fascinated by, and you talked about vision, role, outcome, support blockers that, that's an upfront contract uh yeah about it. vision purpose same kind of same kind yeah of, it's more involved it's a bigger picture but if you if you break it down in terms of what the upfront contracts do at a, at a micro level mm. you're talking about here is at a, at a macro level but it's very similar structure the blockers my biggest fear mm. landmines dealing with that you know it's it, it's 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 funny when you look at it that way it's it's a uh, yeah I love, I love that framework. I really do. Mm. And it just shows you how it can work at both a conversational level in sales, but also then at a macro level when you're trying to ch uh, enact organizational change. I guess it taps into our own psychology of that journey we need to go on. It's where mm. are we going? How are we going to get there? What's in the way? Who's doing what? And, and getting that clarity of purpose. Yeah. And, then I, and I think so far what we've spoken about, though, is, is big change. Mm. And what I've actually found in, in high growth organizations is actually there aren't any big changes. There's just constant change. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, it, it's more in established businesses where they go through big change rather than constant change. Some of the um, uh, one of the most popular frameworks I've given people when they're looking at iterative change, which might be, you know, every few weeks they're coming up with a new idea, a new way of working. Um, is to write a short brief uh, answering four questions. And those four questions are, one is, what's the current situation? Just give people the context with, with mm. what you're working in. Uh, I have this scenario. This is what's currently going on. Um, what is the proposed change that you're looking to make? What are the implications of that change that you're looking to make? And then what is the conclusion that you're looking for? So what is it? What is the current situation? What's the proposed change? Sorry. What's what's the benefits of that change? I missed out one. It's five ooh, steps. Ooh. Sorry. Propo uh, yeah, what's the current situation? What's the proposed change you're recommending? What are the benefits to the business for doing it? Ooh. What are the implications for doing it? And then what is the conclusion? In other words, what's the, what's the uh, kind of the process that you're looking to go for for that? And the reason those five questions really help people who aren't used to implementing change, one is, can they can they actually ratify what the current situation is? Can they define it? It should be a paragraph. Mm -hmm. Everybody can always think about, um, uh, and the proposed change, when they're thinking about that, they've got an idea. But then can they look at it from those two sides? What's the benefits? But what are the implications? And if the implications aren't at least as long, if not slightly longer, then that doesn't show me a consideration. And then what is the conclusion as a result of it? And what I found doing that is probably 25% of the time they get to the end of it and they actually realize that, that the size of the prize isn't big enough to go through the effort of the change. And they go, okay, this is just, at the moment, there are other things that are better to do than this. 
I'm going to put it in a file and we'll come back to it when this raises its head a little bit more. Two things jump out at me, one of that. Just what you said there now about is it big enough to care or let's put it on the back burner. Is it not the exact same thing that we're trying to discover and, and qualify a prospect for? Is this problem big enough? Or are they thinking that, well, you know, it's a nice to have, but we're going to put it on the back burner and figure yeah. out where they are in their change process. And, and the first part of what you talked about in terms of identifying the implications, the impact, the benefits, is the other side of that conversation, which is from the seller. Really, when we're talking about change, we're talking about selling. Surely, it sounds exactly like that, only the language is slightly <laughs> Sales people are change agents, yeah. Yeah, when, exactly. when you spoke to When you spoke to Katie uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of the reps at Outreach Superstar, um, she is not afraid of bringing up the implications of change. And uh, I know you've said it until you're blue in the face. Lots of salespeople won't for the fear of upsetting the apple cart and not getting a deal. Mm. Well, they have 15% win rates. Uh, the reps who bring up the implications of the change and ideally bring them up early, yeah, have 60, 70% win rates. Because yeah. they don't waste their time on people who aren't thinking about, well, okay, actually, how do I do this? Uh, and mm. is it worth the effort? Yeah, you're absolutely, absolutely. Right. It's either going to bite you in the ass now, or it's not. Sorry, it's either going to bite you in the ass later, or you have to deal with it now. Because yeah. if they're not willing to face it, when do you want to find that out? I mean, it is. Mm. I, I don't understand it. Why people don't do that? I really don't. Because you're saving both your prospect and yourself a ton of time. And it's mm. not just that. I also think then you establish a different level of relationship with your prospect because now they see you as a trusted guide rather than mm. a vendor because you're yeah. not afraid to say, well, look, you know, is this big enough of an issue to deal with? What about mm. that? And, oh, yeah, I never thought about that. Mm, I suppose, yeah. And it's that conversation. Now, who are they going to trust? You or somebody else who comes in all Pollyannish, blue sky in the hell? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's mad. But um, such is life. <laughs> I guess if these problems were solved, I mightn't have a job. So There you uh, go. <laughs> Got to look on the bright side. So that's that's interesting, actually, and it's I hadn't thought of it that way. It's very true that I hate to call them modern um, organizations, but yeah, the, particularly technology, fast-paced, fast-growth organizations, there is no big change. You're you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought it. it's it's all iterative change, and it's constant. Mm -hmm. And if you are of a fixed mindset, you're going to really struggle in that environment. It just has to be okay. But I do think most salespeople are open to change they have to be i don't think they could be in the job unless again you're in an old traditional industry where change is not good or it's a highly regulated industry where change for all the right reasons is not necessarily yeah. a good thing but i guess our our experience is in, is in a different industry so it's uh it's not well you know, ultimately you know salespeople are used to change anyway if yeah. you reframe it because yeah. every week every month you've got a different prospect you're selling to uh, we, we live in an infinitely changing environment. Changing a process should be insignificant given the amount of change that goes on anyway. And that's just reframing kind of their perspective on change. Well, you know, next month you're selling to somebody else. That's a change. You're not selling to the same people every month. So, so why should you even think that using exactly the same tactics and strategies uh, with every single prospect makes sense? You need a framework, yeah. uh, but you know you should be open to and subscribe to change.
Yeah, and is that what you you said at the, the start of this that you are attracted to change? That if, if you're in an environment that it's operational, that is just running smooth, that you suddenly then are thinking, this is not right for me. Um, talk to me about that, and what I mean by that is that that's that who you are, what type of work you're attracted to is a, is an important part and plays an important role in that. Yeah, you've just you've just had me kind of flip the script on some of that. What I what's important to say here is I like I like changeable environments. I like mm. the volatility of of that, especially mm. in the early stages. But what I don't want to give the impression, I wouldn't want to give guidance. Uh, and again, as I said before, when you do change, you need to do change with people. Um, is what I'm not excited about is me kind of finding out the answers and changing people to my will and coercing them in that. Um, I, I, I read very few books being dyslexic, but because um, it's tough to do. <laughs> but one of the ones I read and we've spoken about before is Dave Marquette's Turn the Ship Around, uh, you know, submarine commander in the US who I just encourage everybody to read the book. It's fantastic. Uh, but one of the things he did was he removed the need for permission. So it used to be, you know, uh, you know, captain permission to, you know, submerge the ship. Yeah, yeah, submerge the ship. I, you know, it's kind of order and and kind of, and he moved it from permission to intention. And so the intention is, I have a sales rep that comes to me and says, I intend to sell this product to this customer for twenty five percent discount. And then I just, okay. Uh, you know, one of one of the biggest. Why should I approve any kind of discount other than for Sarbanes Oxley? Because um, there's a financial auditable process that's required for that. But you know, just give salespeople uh, the, the latitude to to make discounting decisions. Now, the way you frame that, of course, is uh, my challenge as a leadership is uh, okay. That's your intention. Uh, talk to me uh, about how you came up with that decision. What were the choices that you made? I'm trying to understand how are they thinking about that and how did they come up with it? Or somebody, my favorite one that, that came from the book is somebody comes to me with, uh, you know, they say, oh, Tom, I was thinking of doing this. What would you do? And I said, well, okay, what would you do? And uh, and I said, oh, I knew you were going to ask me that. Uh, well, well, I would do this. And my next question is actually, and so what do you think I'm thinking? I don't even ask a question. <laughs> So what do you think I'm thinking? Oh, uh, well, you're you're thinking, you know, have I have I have I already given them the list price? Huh? Okay. Well, I wasn't thinking that, but okay, let's let's go through now. What what do you think I'm really thinking? Well, you're thinking, well, you know, had they got the budget? Oh, that's a, no, I wasn't thinking that either. All right. Well, what were you thinking? And you could see them just answering their own questions as they go through it, and and all I'm doing is helping them to make sure that they paint the full picture before they present it to the client and they've thought about it. And what I have what I get really excited about as a leader is this variety of thought that they have, that, that kind of you know, uh, cognitive variability actually teaches me a ton. Uh, and I learn because you know, their perspective is so different to me and then that allows me not to have the answers to somebody else, just to have better questions when I go to the next person. I have this picture in mind, there has to be a couch somewhere in the corner of your office. 
Uh, there's probably more of a dent in the wall where they bang their head against it when they come to me for the answer and I say well what do you yeah. think and they go oh yeah. bang <laughs> yeah but it is it's an interesting one and I think that's an important in, in, in the context of the topic we're talking about today is change is where people come up with the answers themselves they're automatically bought into it whereas if you give them the answer and this is at, at both a conversational level but I th also think at an organizational level if you spoon feed people then a you make them dependent but b is that they, they can the organization or that individual can never rise above your competence mm. and and it's not even that it has to be diminished because if you could transfer your competence and all your experience that would be one thing but you can't and when you tell them here's what I would do it's then then exploration of other options for them stops. Yeah, yeah, you create create laser and situational leadership. It used to be fashionable. I'd like it to be fashionable again. But you know, S one, S two, S three, S four. You know, go away, do this. S one, come back. Uh, this is how I would do it. S two, uh, show me how you would do it. S three, and come back at the end of the year when you've got it done. S four. And um, yeah, S3 requires some discipline because in the moment you're often just going to say, this is the way I would do it. It's the primary reason why very good salespeople fail as sales leaders. Not because they can't be a good sales leader, they get caught in the S2 trap. This is how I would do it. Yeah. And um, the, the, the S3 plus version of that is when somebody comes up with something amazing, is engineer a platform for them to become the educator in that. You've always said as well, you know, uh, uh, knowing it, using it, living it, teaching it is the next level beyond that kind of the, the old Sandler accreditation model. If they can teach it to somebody else, they've really got it. Uh, and that also then means that the people don't rely on me necessarily. I build people up to be experts in certain facets of sales and they become the go-to person in the organization. It teaches them without them realizing it, how to become future leaders themselves if that's the avenue they want to go down. We've about five minutes left, Tom. I'd like to talk to you about the role of storytelling has in creating a narrative around that will attract, that, that will help people change their outlook and ultimately their behavior. What's your experience of that? Uh, yeah, I love storytelling. I love analogies. I love storytelling. I like analogies because it takes complex things and gives them a tangible reference. Uh, it's called, um, the deep theory behind it is called monomics. The brain likes to associate. And uh, so if you can associate a story that's very accessible and has a journey to it to, through analogy to something that's very complicated, as we talked about earlier, was the idea of a buying committee and a selling committee. It's not tennis, it's rugby. Most people kind of get that. It's 15 versus 15 and there's specialist positions and, and people tee off against each other. That's an analogy of, of how that works. Now I could turn that analogy into a story if I was able to talk about the journey that one particular rugby team went through and how they worked out how to work together and how they sat in a room and came up with predetermined plays that allowed them to work more effectively against the opposition, although I, your, your prospect isn't the opposition, but in, in the sense of a story, mm. how that all came together and that would allow people to get it. So that's analogy to story to change. And um, yeah. 
And I love to actually, as a reference point in this podcast, go back to the story you told earlier, which was about the prospect who said, my number is 8 million. Yeah. And to me, what I took from that and anybody listening to it is there's a, there's a really, really important lesson in it. But you could deliver it by saying, don't forget, not everybody uh, can sign up at any level, that there's some people so senior that, that they'll only, mm. they won't sign below a certain level. You could do that. But, but mm. people won't remember it. But the way you told it, I think, is was wonderful. Not just, <laughs> people won't realize the genius, but you are really, really good at storytelling. Was the element in there as well about how you framed it. You, you injected humility into it because you said, I didn't get this, but a rep who was really smart got it mm. and, and, and corrected me on it. And that element of positioning you as the storyteller, not the hero in the story, but the observer telling the story mm. or the guide and that it, it allows people then to, because, because of that humility is then there's no, there, there's, it's easier to listen to in some way. Psychologically, mm. it's easier to, there, there, there's no contest in that. And then it's, then it's, then, then the path is cleared the, in its purest form to the lesson, which mm. is then delivered about, the uh, CFO, what I don't know what her title was, yeah. but, you know, in the room, and so if people go back to that story and just deconstruct it. I think you have in there a, a, a wonderful lesson in storytelling. People said so things for stories for me, and I know you're an expert as well. One is I, I like to involve as many senses as possible: sight, sound, touch, feel, taste, uh, and then you have to include emotions. People don't remember facts; they remember emotions. And if you can attach a fact to an emotion, that's monomics again, you then create something that's memorable. Uh, Mark Cosiglo uh, at Outreach gave me a phenomenal one, the other, and I've used it two or three times. Um, you can ask somebody, so, you know, uh, what's your CRO? What's the top three initiatives your CRO is working on? And most prospects will just shut down because they know they're about to give you something. Uh, and the example he gave, and we'll use this one in closing, he said, um, I said, right, he said, let's imagine you're in the office, you've all been working remotely, so very rarely you're coming into the office, you sat there, you're just remembering like how great it is. And then the, the door opens to the office and it's one of those like sprung-loaded doors, but it actually hits the backstop so hard, you hear it and everybody like looks up and it's a CRO walking in. CRO walks in, stomps through the office, literally beckons everybody as they're walking past. You all walk to the boardroom, like in a pyramid shape, following the CRO into the boardroom. Sit you all down, they go to the whiteboard, and they grab a pen in the middle, and they, they grab the green one first and go to right, go, that's not the right, I need the red pen for this one. So they grab the red pen, and in big letters, they do one bracket, and they just write up on the board like this, and then two brackets and right up on the board really big letters and everybody's like looking at it and whatever what are the three things that the CRO wrote up on the board and and I've just watched people go like they're living it they're in the board and go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah oh well they said you know we need to increase our win rates here we need to do this we need to do this and just rattle it off they you brought them into the story it was a really kind of revelatory moment for me not just telling a story but can I bring somebody with me into it? And will they finish the story for me? That's an area of storytelling that I'm looking to develop over the coming months.
Masterful. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you again for joining me. I thoroughly enjoyed it, as always. And we'll uh, talk to you again next month. Absolutely. Take care. Cheers. Bye.